Welcome to the Windswept and Interesting Podcast. I'm Richard Baines. A new national park is to be created for Scotland. We don't know where yet, but my bet is on Dumfries and Galloway. That'll be fairly handy for my guest today, who lives here on the south side of Glasgow in a very urban setting, but who takes an extraordinary, some might say slightly obsessive, interest in national parks. Nick Kemp is the blogger who's put the fear of God into our park authorities, Loch Lomond in particular, with his forensic examination of their doings. There have been resignations and stony silences directed at him for his revelations about what they get up to. But there's much more to Nick than just a campaigning, slightly irritated blog. He's a former board member of Nature Scott, or SNH as it was known then. He is one of the people who is responsible for the freedom we now enjoy in Scotland's countryside but it'd be better to hear all this from him. So I'm heading for his sitting room up this quiet street next to me here to find out where it all began for him. I spent quite a lot of my childhood in Scotland, went down to London in my 20s when I was involved in community campaigning. And then I suppose with the victory of Thatcherism, if you like, I fled back up to Scotland to my great passion, which was the hills and mountains. And I uh, studied social work and became a social worker. I was born in England, but my father had a job up in the north, so I spent a lot of my childhood up there. So despite the English accent, I mean, I've lived um, three quarters of my life in Scotland. So that's how you ended up in Scotland. And what were you doing here when you got here? Well, I, I was going mountaineering and at the same time I was doing my social work. And then one day I was hitching. I think I got picked up by a guy called Graham Little who was president of the Mountaineering Council of Scotland. We got talking on the way down the A9, and he said at the end, you should join our committee, Nick. We've got an AGM coming up. So I stood, um, I got elected, and I spent four years on the Access and Conservation Committee. Um, The president of Mountaineering Scotland at the time was Bob Reid, so I learned an awful lot from him. There were some fantastic other people on the committee. It was all done by volunteers in those days, except there was we had one part-time member of staff. So I learned a lot, and at the end of that, I was asked to serve as president. So I did that, and it was just at the time that negotiations were happening, preparatory to the access legislation. So what year are we talking about now? Um, oh God, our date's terrible. We're talking... Uh, the late, late 90s? Late 90s. The late 90s. No. But just, just to reel back for a minute, the social work... I'm not going to ignore the social no. work. Where, where was that and what was that dealing with? Because it's going to be quite a tough trade. Oh, yeah. uh, well, I started off in what's called generic social work. So I just worked with everything children to old people. But at the time, and this was in the mid-90s, uh, social work started becoming specialised. So I ended up working more and more in children and families. That was in Coke Bridge, actually. I started right. work. Yeah. And then when Strathclyde uh, got broken up, I asked to move into Glasgow and I started working with older people. So, so I did that and I then became involved in commissioning of services. And I, I think that's quite important because when you commission services, uh, you have to try and work out how things work, how the world works. Uh, so making things happen is really, really complicated. So I've really valued that experience uh, of doing that. I spent 25 years working in social work and I was then shunted out, uh, given early retirement, and, and that was that. But I've actually gone back and I now campaign on social work too um, in the COVID crisis. Um, I 
could see what was going to happen in the care homes. It was absolutely appalling. People weren't, it's very topical at the moment, obviously. So I wrote something about it called The Predictable Crisis. And since then, I've gone back, if you like, to social work and I campaigned for Commonweal and their care reform group. Then wheeling forward to the outdoor stuff again. So you were you were you became president of the Mountaineering Council. The access legislation was just coming up, was just coming to the fore, and people were very interested in that. H- how did that go? Uh, well, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, uh, it's, so we had a great opportunity. The Labour government came in and they basically said to the landowners, either reach agreement with the recreational organisations or we'll legislate anyway. So we'd been negotiating on something called the Access Concordat. It had taken well over a year to agree two sides of paper. And then suddenly the landowners were very keen to negotiate and we managed to negotiate the whole basis for the access legislation in under six months. So that was fantastic. The whole principles in the access legislation that you see now, right, we agreed then. But the whole process, what we'd agreed, went into the civil servant, Scottish government, and they totally rewrote that access legislation on the English model, which was completely what we hadn't agreed. So there was then a whole campaign in Parliament, which was led by Dave Morris from the Ramblers Association, who's a great campaigner and a great friend of mine, um, basically to reverse all that and get back to what we'd originally agreed, which eventually the Scottish Parliament agreed to, um, it was helped, I think, quite a lot by foot and mouth. You recall on foot and mouth, they put access restrictions all over the country. Um, it, it was quite... The only place you could go climbing was Glencoe because it was National <laughs> Trust and they opened their land. I remember having to go there. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, well, and I went, and the, the, the weird thing about that is they'd opened a tiny little strip Right where you could uh, uh, where you could go, and I went there actually to go uh, to, to go ice climbing, um, and uh, uh, the one place where there was sheep in Glencoe was up, sitting on this corridor where you were trying to get access. So we use common sense. I actually always think that most of access legislation is about common sense. Ignored the stupid restrictions, walked around the places without sheep, and we went and did a very easy ice climb. Yeah, we we did NC Gully. I remember doing NC Gully on a brilliant day there and it was fantastic, but there was nobody else around because of, yeah. Because of that, yeah, well, I think when we went, we might have been there the same day. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So, access legislation has been generally a success, but there have been glitches and there are problems with it. I'm aware of, for instance, my local nature reserve, um, Billy Gray, the guy who's in charge of it for Scottish Wildlife Trust, I don't think he wants to ban camping, but if he wanted to ban camping, it's a nature reserve, and he can't. So people can go and camp in the nature reserve, which is kind of inappropriate, but that's a, as a result of the access legislation. I also deal with often with a place called Finnick Glen, the Devil's Pulpit, which you'll be aware of, which has become very badly damaged and very littered and, and quite dangerous, frequent rescues. It's a very small area of ground. The owner can't restrict access at all. There are all sorts of problems with that. Is the access legislation, does it need fine-tuning? Well, I don't think so. Um, I I think the principles in the access legislation are entirely right. You should be able to go wherever you want unless you're causing damage. 
I would probably disagree with you slightly about camping in a, in a nature reserve. I think it depends a bit on how it's done. A lot of people now have said nature reserves should be for people too. And actually being able to wake up in a tent and watch wildlife, right, out of the flap of your tent is one of the most wonderful experiences in life. So we can, there can be debate about that. It obviously depends where and when and what's happening. Um, but in terms of Finnick Glen, and I've gone and had a good look at it, um, I mean, the issue there is about infrastructure and it's what infrastructure is there to support people. I mean, Finnick Glen, it's a disaster. So there's no, there's no parking. It's been, made, it's been made popular by TV programmes, right? And, so, and, so, and social media. So, and so, and yeah, and following that social media. So it's highly popular. There's no public investment. The poor farmer has been left to cope for themselves, right? And then... Our local authorities do exactly the wrong thing, put double yellow lines all along the road to stop people parking. All it's done is displaced the issue, made the problem worse. People now have to walk along what's a very dangerous road to get there. There's nothing about helping people at all about the way that site is being managed and the way the local authority has responded. Now, obviously, a lot of that is due to cuts, and that's happened, I think, across the peace in Scotland. I mean, when the access legislation started, there were lots of access officers employed. Most of those jobs have disappeared. Rangers. Yeah, rangers. All of that. And post-COVID, the government's come up with pots of funding, uh, temporary funding of rangers to help people. But there's no permanent attempt to deal with these issues. And of course, the most famous place where everyone knows there are issues now is it is on the nc 500 you know in terms of tourism attracting people to the outdoors and so on it's been an absolute fantastic success but there has been no investment in infrastructure and it's complete disaster and if you look at what happens on the continent you know Mm -hmm. that actually uh, there's lots of investment to support tourism Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's done, and I think this is one of the interesting things that's coming up now, is the visitor tax is, uh, you know, throughout the Alps Pyrenees, people pay a small tax each day for being there, but the money is spent locally. It doesn't, the, it, yeah. it doesn't disappear. Yeah. It right? is the local commune. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah, can then yeah. say, well, there's climbers coming here, so we'll put some bolts on the yeah. local crag yeah. and make it safe. That's kind of what we need to see. And I hope... And I've been meaning, actually, in part of my campaigning to respond and put a submission in about the visitor tax. And it's one of those things. There are so many things you could respond to. But one of the things I think is absolutely key is that it must not go to local authorities. If it goes to local authorities, the the, the, the finance people will use it to budget substitute. All they'll do is use the money to cut something else. So we can't do that. It has to go to local communities um, to be able to spend and in terms of very remote communities, you might not be getting enough tax. There's an opportunity for some sort of redistributive mechanism that maybe 20% of the tax goes from the most popular areas and gets used and moved to communities who don't get... Um, so there's a lot of tweaks, but, yeah. but some sort of local tax that stays local yeah. is, it looks like a fairly obvious thing to do. And in the case of places like Finnick Glen, is there perhaps not a, an argument that there would be a pot of money where the government could say, right, we're going to buy that. We can see a huge problem, 80,000 people a year visiting somewhere with no facilities. We're going to buy it. We can take the risk, the liability of people getting injured there because we're the government and we can afford to do that and then take it on and deal with the problem.
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, there is space there. I mean, space there to actually create a very great visitor. I mean, it, with a bit of imagination, right? Uh, and dare I say, sort of public sector entrepreneurialism, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms, I know, but, but actually you could make, you could really make it work. Yeah. And I think most of the car drivers and you know, people who are turning up there, they're only get, going to be there a couple of hours. They paid three quid for the car park. Uh, you know, it's like a no-brainer. Yeah, and Corrie Shallot Gorge. I haven't visited the new National Trust development there, but I think it's quite a, a good parallel. I don't know if you've seen it, but obviously that's what they've done. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so just to come back, I think, I think the access legislation is working. There are some issues, partly the lack of access officers. There's no one now to take enforcement action. So one of the things that really bugs me is in, in Balquida, there are still, 20 years after the access legislation in the National Park, there are still lots of no access signs. And we have a National Park Authority that has failed to take those signs down in 20 years. It's just absolutely incredible. So we have, uh, we, we, you know, from the other side, people say that visitors are a problem, but we have, we have some rogue landowners, and there's a lot of landowners who are very good, who respect the access rights, but uh, there are some that don't, and there's no action taken against them. And I, it's really important that we deal with those issues. We deal with the lock gates, you know, there are huge issues now for with mountain biking becoming popular. It's very difficult. We have all these forest fences everywhere. People put in high gates. There's no way of getting across them if you've got a bike, um, you know, unless you're young and very fit and you've got a light bike. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So, there are, so, so there are all these practical issues where we actually still need, we need access officers who can deal with those things. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned the national parks there, yes. and you have become the scourge of our <laughs> national parks with your Parks Watch blog. Yes. Why particularly the national parks? Why have you focused on that for your campaign? Okay. Well, it's partly accident and partly thought out. The accidental bit was um, after I'd, uh, I, I spent like 15 years in work, right, not involved in environmental things at all, and then I became aware of the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park Authority was proposing camping bylaws. And I became very concerned about that because as I was concerned, it was undermining our access rights. Um, so I tried behind the scenes. I worked the system, if you like. I put in lots of representations and so on. It was all completely and utterly ignored. Now, during the course of that, I discovered one of the reasons it was being ignored was actually that the park let's say, haven't been doing things in an open and transparent man manner and they'd had, I think there were other agendas going on. Um, uh, uh, and uh, because of that, that prompted me to, to think, well, I'll get to set up a blog to try and make this more widely known. And then my friend Dave Morris said, well, if you're doing one for one national park, you might as well do both of them, Nick. So I thought, oh, well, Dave, well, and I got to the Cairngorms quite a lot. So I thought that would be a a good thing to do so i set up parks watch to comment on what's going on in, in in the national parks and that's almost been going 10 years now so can you imagine why nick was not given another term on the nature scott board has he got it in for king charles who's not my king by the way and which national park won't speak to him stay listening we'll be back in one minute And it takes a very, shall we say, forensic look, 
you know, at, at what going, what's going on in the parks. What's the sort of, what's the worst thing? I've got the, I've got the word egregious on my brain at the moment. What's, what's the most egregious thing that the, that the parks have been doing? I, I wouldn't want to single out a- anything. I, 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 I'm not quite sure. Um, I have an antipathy, you know, for the 10 best, 10 worst, all that sort of <laughs> views in life. I've found it's not particularly... So, so, so I would be very, very reluctant to commit myself. And also what happens is... I, I mean, I, I think the important thing to say about national parks um, is that they should be, and everyone instinctively understands this, they should be places that are different. Our national parks should be different to the rest of the country. They should be places where nature and conservation... Uh, 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 play a bigger role where we see a successful nature and so on and the problem is they're not and and they're not different enough no well i would say they're really hardly any different at all and and actually so one of the issues at the moment is the scottish government's looking at reviewing the national parks legislation um, and actually then really not looking at any of the right things so uh, i mean for example the both national parks have to apply the same planning system, the same planning rules as elsewhere in the country. Right? Now, they have some slightly different policies, but basically we're just applying exactly the same planning system as we do elsewhere. And you can look at that on a whole range of policies. They're really no different to elsewhere because I think they should be different and should be driving change, if you like. And the new minister, Lorna Slater's, understood that I think she wants them to drive change I would just say she's probably going in the wrong way but we can (laughs) we can follow that in a moment but but actually our national parks are very much a microcosm of uh, most aspects of life in Scotland so it isn't just about nature I mean we've got everything from you know we we've got everything from how it's governed, how government works in the national parks. We've got housing crises, we've got transport issues, we've got jobs issues, how people get jobs. So it's very much, it's social as well as environmental. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've highlighted things like um, uh, hill tracks. Yeah. have been one of the things you've, you've and, and hydroelectricity schemes. Um, are they particularly bad examples of, of what goes on in national parks and what's not? being done correctly well in terms of development i I think what's interesting in the planning system is basically uh you would expect things to be done development through the planning system to be done better than elsewhere and it hasn't been right Right. i can't see there's any difference so the hydro schemes there are lots of hydro schemes in the loch lomond and trossachs national park generally they're no better or worse than elsewhere in the country there's some good ones and there's some absolute shockers. Um, and it's exactly the same with hill tracks. Um, there's a reflection of what's going on wider in, in Scotland. Um, but, but there's also, there are other issues to do with the National Park. One of my main interests is, is to do with land use. And our national parks really haven't been, I, in my view, not at all successful there. Um, uh, so the Loch Lomond Park has done nothing to change the industrial forestry as practiced by Forest and Land Scotland. So we've got lots of conifer plantations. There's lots of talk about changing it, but nothing's actually changed. And in the Cairngorms, I mean, the, the, the two really big issues there are deer numbers. Um, and deer numbers, of course, have come down. They come down on the western side of the National Park. But that's all to do with the, 
states in Cairngorms connect, deciding they wanted to do it, it's really got nothing to do with the national park. Um, you know, the test for the national park, which I see it, is that have they got King Charles to change his behaviour at Balmoral? Right? Balmoral had, it was identified in the deer working group, you know, it's part of the, um, the, the deer management group there, was identified as the worst place in the country. So we've got that, we've also got Muirburn, and again, King Charles is involved in that. His Delma Danforth estate is just like burnt to a cinder, really. It's all burnt moorland. These are things that need to change. And the Kangles National Bark Authority has, in my view, made absolutely no difference at all. And that's something we should be getting really concerned about. Now, I, I got the impression from reading your blog that of the two parks, if you had to choose one against the other, you'd probably go for Cairngorms doing a bit better. Um, well, in terms of governance, right, in terms of openness, willingness to consider issues, it's night and day, right? I mean, I, 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 I would say the, the, the Cairngorms National Park Authority... Uh, um, you know, they're prepared to take criticism. They're prepared to engage. I've had board members engage with me. The Loch Lomond National Bark Authority, they just refuse to talk to me, right? They tell their board members they're not allowed to talk to me. There's no engagement. Everything's through freedom of information requests. And I just see that as being, um, I mean, I suppose they see me as some sort of demon, but actually they, they, their response has been, I just think it's, it's outrageous, actually, that... Uh, a local the, the the public authority just can do that to people I, and what's interesting i think in the case of Loch Lomond and Trossas National I'm not the only person right i've talked to lots of local people lots of people get in contact with me about the blog and they can't talk either right so it's not just about this isn't just about me it's actually the way the governance of the park sorted out is that people are not free to... They are worried about the consequences and what happens if they protest about things. And I'm sitting here thinking, should I mention the fact that... I found it quite difficult to get um, cooperation from the National Park. They have, in, they have at times, um, but it's not always easy, should I say. And perhaps leave it, leave it at that. It, it is... It, it is difficult. Well, uh, well and, and even people who are working with them just find it really, really difficult. And I think that it, they, they've got a board that doesn't scrutinise what the senior staff are doing. And I'm sure there are some good people, right, in the park. There's always good people at the front line. But the trouble is, uh, I'm certainly, they're not allowed to talk to people. They're not free to do things. And that creates problems. So I would like to see, uh, in fact, you know, generally, both our national parks, far more, uh, what I would say, openness and democracy within the national park authorities that staff were fr freer to, to, to speak out. And that does, I must say, that does happen in the Cairngorms. I can email a Cairngorms national park member of staff and they will reply to me. Right, yeah. I get a straight answer. From, and they're not worried yeah. about what their boss is going to say. Yeah. I cannot, that does not happen yeah. in the Loch Lomond Park. Yeah, I've got an email on my phone that I need to read at the moment from Sarah Henshaw, who's um, one of the um, environmental nature people, yeah. and she's just written back without even clearing it with the press office. Which yeah. But you mentioned um, uh, openness of staff to talk to you, um, which takes me back to Nature Scott. I find the Nature Scots are very good with that. Yeah. They will let me talk to staff, and they won't necessarily insist on you know, reviewing what they've said, and, uh, and that's really, really good. But you were on the Nature Scott board for a while as well. It, it, because of your campaign. Tell me a bit about that. I was appointed to the board 
partly because to I think to help with the development of the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. So um, that's that's what my expertise was in. But what was what I found really interesting about being on the board is that obviously access was only a small part of what they did. I'd always been in, interested in environmental matters, but it gave me a chance, I suppose, to see how. You know, all the, there were lots of papers and decisions and thought about what do we do about the environment. So I had a chance to to experience that. And what I found is, I suppose, I um, I was a bit um, hesitant at first, I suppose, because I would read things and think, well, I'm not an ecologist, I'm not a scientist, you know. I'm not, uh, but I started, you know, like asking questions about things and I found that actually generally it was very valued, the points I was making. So I, I learned an enormous amount from being on the Nature Scott board. But I only did, I did, I was three years, um, I was one of only two people, I think, who'd never been automatically reappointed. So, and they, I was told I could... Uh, apply again by the civil servants but uh, it was a totally different job description and I think what was happening was they changed the boards at that time the boards had been full of people who got expertise so they knew about something right and they were passionate about something which I think was very good for the boards they then turned into bodies to deal with governance so they've stacked full of people and they became stacked full of people for almost 20 years boards across Scotland about people who really didn't know stuff. I mean, I think half the people on the Loch, well, two people on the Loch Lomond and Trossachs Ash Park, and one lives in London, for goodness sake. How on earth can they see what's going on? And, 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 and my view is, you know, if you're on a board, when I was on the Nature Scott board, I mean, I was a mountaineer, so I used to love going up to the mountains. Um, but I made a point of going around all the nature reserves right there and to go and have a look at them. Right. So I could, you know, and I remember things. So I went to the Loch Lomond National Nature Reserve and, oh, my goodness, if you try to get to the nature reserve from the south, you know, um, from Garta Khan, an absolute nightmare getting there. So I would I would do that and then come back and I'd say to staff, look, hang on. Um, the problem's still not been sorted, by the way, 20 years later, but it was acknowledged. So so I think there's a need for having board members who are very engaged, who, are, who actually know about things that are going on the ground and aren't just looking at papers. You, you're very forthright. And as I said, you're quite forensic and <laughs> you don't mince your words. Do you think you pissed them off? Do you think you actually just, they got fed up with you? Well, yes, but, but it was also because what I was uncovering. So there were some very uncomfortable things happening. So, um, I mean, with the Loch Lomond uh, Park, uh, I... I was responsible through FOIs. I discovered that one of the board members had been trading in share. Well, the chair of the planning committee had then bought shares in the Canonish gold mine. And it was only, well, thanks to Rob Edwards and got on, was a lot of publicity and, uh, uh, and he had to resign. So when I revealed some of these things, uh, since then I've really never been forgiven. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, uh, and I don't think until there's uh, some fundamental changes. We've at last got a minister who is quite interested in national parks. I don't think Lorna Slater knows very much about them, but I would hope that she would start having a look at who's on the board and who's on the staff, senior staff team and seeing that there is actually a need for reform. I've got a whole dossier of stuff, Richard, about not about the Ken... I, mean, I have not those complaints about the Kengals National Park at all, board at all, but I've got a whole dossier of stuff about the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park. 
and, and it really does need government scrutiny what's going on. Can I ask you how old you are? Uh, yeah, just, uh, I'll forget, 64. 64. <laughs> so, but no signs of any easing off, letting up, anything like that? Uh, no, well, I'm really, I enjoy what I do. I mean, for me, being out is really important. Um, so, I actually, I, um, you know, Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park's my backyard, really. I, I like going out there as often, but I, I have a nose around place. I like doing different things, exploring different areas. I mean, it's a vast area. So although I've been up most of the hills 10 times or so, right, I can still find different ways to go up them. So I tend to go out and, and some of what I blog about is that it's purely accidental. It's like I go out onto the hill and very much see, see things and think, oh, What's behind this, right? And uh, why is it like this? So, so, um, so you're going to keep on uh, for the for the time being. Yes, for the time um, being. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, Nick. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening. I have a feeling I'll be back down here on the south side of Glasgow again for another podcast with Nick, and I've actually penciled in doing a climb with him this winter. If you want to give me feedback or suggestions, you can get me on the social network, now quite awkwardly known as X, where I'm at Scott Nature Corps, or find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or even Instagram these days, as I am down with the young folk. Mm-hmm.